Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show. Lindsey Rhodes here, still processing the way teams look in the wake of the draft. You know, we talk so much in the build-up to the draft about various guys and their skill sets, and we say all the time, you know, if this guy goes to the right spot as like a qualifier when we're talking about how good they can be in the NFL, well, now we know where they are going to play. So we're going to take stock of that in this episode. Guys who went to spots that are particularly good for them. Uh, where they will have a chance to be the best version of themselves, perhaps. We're going to talk to Jim Nagy, who, as you know, is deep in the weeds of scouting as the director of the Reese's Senior Bowl. He's going to join me with five names that fit that bill as far as he's concerned. And Texans, Seahawks, Ravens, Cowboys, and Cardinals fans who are going to particularly enjoy his analysis. But before we get to him, I came across a piece recently that Ben Solak had done for The Ringer about wide receiver talent. The headline was, the NFL draft will never have a bad wide receiver class again, which A, is a very good headline. Yes, I would like to know more about that. Click. Uh, B, it's potentially hyperbolic. But C, it's also very interesting for a couple of different reasons. One, we just saw six receivers go in the first 18 picks in the 2022 draft, a draft that was generally agreed to be good, but did not have a surefire Jamar Chase-like talent. And two, receiver contracts are blowing up. Tyreek getting $30 million a year and getting dealt as a result of wanting that money. A.J. Brown traded to the Eagles because he also wanted a big contract and then got one in Philadelphia. Devontae Adams got paid. We're talking about a lot of money being allocated to the top wide receivers, obviously, which could complicate bookkeeping matters for teams that have a high-priced quarterback in particular. So if the headline is true, and we're going to see class after class of NFL-ready wide receivers, then that could, arguably should, have a major effect on roster-building strategy. Do you just rotate those guys through, like the running back model? Get a good rookie when his deal is up, maybe get a different good rookie. I think the implications are really interesting and certainly worth talking about. So Ben is here to do just that. From The Ringer and The Ringer NFL podcast, Ben Solak. Let's break the huddle. Oh yeah, let's go! Two on, two on, two. Ready? So Ben, receivers, good for the rest of time in perpetuity. Good draft classes. That's what we're going into. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's worried. Like, oh, the the receiver market. All these veterans are going to get so much money. What do we do? Just draft receivers forever, and it'll always work and never be bad. Go team. <laughs> And scene. What, what? Let's go back because there are some things there that I think are sort of why I'm so intrigued, right? Because if we're gonna, if we're looking at draft classes that are gonna be good, then are we looking at like a new running back type thing where you just like flush them out after a few years and you never pay them because you can always get somebody else to come in? Is the wide receiver position different? In a sense, um, there's a lot of different directions to go in off of this. But first, let's start with why the statement was made in the first place about wide receiver drafts effectively going to be good for the next, you know, uh, near future. What do you see about uh, why, why that is? Right. So it, it's a question of, of, of resources and economics, right? It's, it's a question of what are we trying to do, not just in professional football, but in all the levels of football below it. Uh, before I did like NFL coverage, I was doing draft coverage. So just year long, it was just, Who's coming out? Who might come out? Who should maybe go back to school? Whatever. 
And over the course of those years, you start to every single season, and we get to January, February, hear this refrain of like, you know, it's a good receiver class this year. Mm-hmm. And eventually you start to think, well, if they're all good receiver classes, kind of <laughs> the Incredibles, right, with Syndrome, are, 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 they all, is, is that, are they all the same? And what you realize is that they're all good receiver classes, not necessarily because this, this unique class is good and these unique players are good but because the volume of players available at receiver has never been greater. And thereby, there are just more good receivers being produced by high school and being produced by college by the law of big numbers, right? And so in the high school ranks 20 years ago, you weren't throwing the football. Throwing mm-hmm. football is hard. You're running wing T nonsense. You're on triple option, right? This is, this is the way we had to move the ball down the field because it was difficult to find a quarterback who could get that passing game working. I mean, it might've been a little bit further back in 20 years. Yeah. Right. Right. But, well, I'm, you know. I'm thinking about where I grew up, which literally like, I remember watching Pocono mountain East beat us with a triple option every single year and being like, come on guys, it's the 2010s. Let's move forward with our lives. <laughs> but we, we, we struggled to throw the football as rules changed, as offenses became more spread oriented and figured out how to throw the ball in the short areas of the field and get yards after the catch. All of a sudden high school, receivers were getting more volume and at the same time concurrently there's been the explosion of seven on seven football which is spring high school football no running no contact there's no injuries which is critical and it's all passing concepts against passing defenses and this has created a huge environment for the development of skills for 16 year olds 17 year olds who otherwise would have been triple option quarterbacks and wing t fullbacks they have the ability to catch passes get it on film and then send it to colleges And colleges have gotten a lot better at throwing the football and recruiting these quarterbacks and developing these quarterbacks. And so they get the ball to more receivers and now more body types, shorter players, thicker players, right? We had Traylon Burks out of Arkansas, built like a linebacker, 6'3", 230. He's playing Mm -hmm. receiver in the SEC because now we, we know how to get the ball to this player a little bit more easily. We know how to use yards after the catch and he becomes more valuable to a passing offense as a receiver than he would to a defense as a linebacker. So there's just Uh, an explosion of people playing receiver. And as that happens, there's more cream to rise to the top. And every receiver class seems to have some really good first round picks. Well, the opportunity part, let's start there. Cause it, it, what you say totally makes sense to me in terms of the passing leagues. It's like that whole outliers theory from Mm -hmm. Malcolm Gladwell about like the, what is it? A hundred thousand hours? I don't even yeah, remember 10, what the number I think is. it is. Ten thousand. Okay, if it's a hundred thousand. I'm not as good at writing as I thought I was. Let's hope it's ten thousand. They're fucking dead by they make it to the NFL. <laughs> They're like eighty years old. Um. Okay, so ten thousand hours makes a lot more sense. Not good at math. So, uh, and then and kind of like that all star theory, right? Like the more reps that you get, if you're good early, then you get put in an all star program, and then you're more likely to be better forever because you just are getting more and more and more experience. So the passing league thing does make a lot of sense to me, um, just in terms of reps. Is the separation then, is it, do you have a separation at the top still? You know what I mean? Like, are you less likely to have a guy like last year's draft class? There was Jamar Chase. There was that elite can't miss. This year's draft class didn't really have that. Do you think that we're going to see more of like the pool of people that are acceptable is greater? But that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be these guys who will pop. Yeah. So I think it's absolutely the pool of acceptable people will be greater. I think what we've seen is, it, is a, a rising tide in the, in the second and third tiers, especially, right? We had 13 receivers go in the first two rounds of the 2022 class. It's a tied a record, right? And then 15 receivers went in the next five rounds, 
So the league was telling you, we like these couple of tiers, right? There were six in the first 18, Christian Watson at 34, and then there were six more from like 35 to 54. You know what I mean? Like they just all Drop. went a blitz. This yeah. is the tier. These are the tiers we like. Yep. And then after that, you know, we're kind of going to pick our guys where we pick them, but we like everybody kind of above this line. So that pool of acceptable players, I think is a good way of, of framing it. And then there will be stars because of the exact same theory. If there's a lot more people, then there's a lot more acceptable people. And if there's a lot more acceptable people, there's a better chance that one of them is freaking awesome. What yeah. will be, what I think is critical to understand is that that won't always be the first receiver selected. Jamar Chase was recent. Jamar Chase is the best rookie receiver season we've seen ever, certainly in a doggone long time. He was the first receiver taken off the board. It's important to remember that was not 100%. We thought that would happen, but we didn't know that was going to happen coming into draft day. And if you go and you look at the classes beforehand, well, the best receiver was not the first receiver selected in those classes, right? In, in 2020, we have Henry Ruggs as the first receiver, and obviously his career took a, a left turn. But Justin Jefferson, who is the fifth receiver taken in that group, has clearly been the guy you would expect to be the best out of that group. 2019, Marquise Brown and Nikhil Harry were the first round picks. Then came DK Metcalf. Then came Debo Samuel, right? So uh, because there's a greater pool of acceptable people, it's more likely we get stars. More likely we get these elite players, these elite young rookie receivers. But we shouldn't believe we'll always be right in figuring out who that dude is in mm -hmm. April. We're probably going to be wrong more than we're going to be right. And that goes back to the body types thing, right? Like Metcalf, an unbelievable receiver, runs three routes. Debo Samuel, an unbelievable receiver, is a running back. We've found ways to make more different dudes work at receiver. So now there's more ways that the top guy is surprising to us and accordingly wasn't picked with that first receiver selection. Do you think they still get better once they're selected in the league because of opportunity? Like if it's true at a younger age that you go into a passing league and you get more reps and therefore then you're going to get better and you're ahead of people who are not going to the passing leagues and getting those extra reps and they're only playing in the fall on their high school team or whatever. Um, if you go to a team where the opportunity is greater earlier, do you actually think that there is room for them to become better still? Or do you think that we just know them as being good because we've had the opportunity to see them succeed. Yes, they get better. Uh, and, and a lot of it is because NFL teams have more resources and better, better coaching to optimize the players. The two guys that immediately come to mind are Justin Jefferson and AJ Brown. Justin Jefferson played with Jamar Chase, pretty good football player. And Terrace Marshall, who uh, was a, a five-star recruit, was a second, maybe third round pick for the Panthers, hasn't really panned out. Um, but those guys were outside receivers. For Joe Burrow, who of all college quarterbacks said, if I get one-on-one on the outside, I'll take it. I do not care. I will, I will test this corner. I will test this window. Sitting in the slot, running a seven-yard option route was Justin Jefferson, who now runs 35-yard posts, right? And it always had that skill at LSU, but just offense didn't need it as much. They needed a good slot guy, good stick mover. Jefferson could do that very well. So a big part of the conversation with Jefferson coming out was, what will he look like transitioning to the outside? We don't really know, as opposed to CeeDee Lamb out of Oklahoma. We've seen it before. Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs out of Alabama. We've seen it before. Lo and behold, if we had seen it at LSU, we probably would have known. Um, but that, that opportunity for optimization, right? You get him in Minnesota where there's, there's, there's more room and there's more talent and offense, both on the team and the coaching staff, to get him in a better position, you see an explosion. AJ Brown was similar. Uh, DK Metcalf on one side, Demarcus Lodge on the other side. They had outside receivers. Brown was a big slot. He was catching a six-yard curl route, breaking a tackle from a linebacker. If they could have had a quarterback and an offense at the SEC level 
that ran that play action, run that drift route, right? Run that in-breaker the way the Titans have with A.J. Brown. They would have done it. They couldn't really do that at Ole Miss. They didn't yet have the, the, the knowledge how it trickled down from the NFL. They didn't really have the quarterback. Put him in Tennessee, gave him Ryan Tannehill, who will throw that route to the cows come home. And all of a sudden, you have A.J. Brown, who's one of the best yak receivers in the league, catch balls 15 yards down the field. Um, perfect for what he does well. So in the NFL, we optimize a little better what our players can do. And that's why you can get star production out of guys you drafted as the sixth, seventh, eighth receiver. The changes in acceptable body types that you mentioned earlier for wide receiver, how do you see that affecting the talent pool specifically? Like, do you see evidence that players that would have had to not had to play, I don't want to say that, but that would have played cornerback or would have been slotted to play cornerback or running back or something like that in the past, just because their body type said, this is what that person is. Do you see evidence that suggests that those people are choosing to become wide receivers now that the best athletes, so to speak, are becoming wide receivers, whereas they used to be a little bit more diversified. Yeah, you do. Uh, uh, Bill Connolly wrote a really good piece before the 2021 draft for ESPN about receivers taking over the NFL draft. And what he had that was really cool was recruiting data, where basically he just said, listen, in terms of the percentage of five stars and four stars, uh, receivers have nearly doubled over the last 10 years. I think it was from like 10 to 22%, whereas there was about a 30% decrease in receivers. It went from, I want to say like 18 to 14 or 18 to 12. I, you can find the piece. I can't remember the numbers. That is, it's not like four star, like where the four stars came from changed, right? It's not like, like the, the, the number of them changed. You were watching as a, Five foot 10, 180 pound dude, Tyreek Hill dominate for the Chiefs. And then you were saying, I look like that guy. I'm built like that guy. I'd like to play like that guy. You probably aren't as fast as that guy, but whatever. You're a high school kid. You believe you can be. That's fine. You now want to play receiver. You're asking your coach. DK to play believes that he is as yeah, fast. Yeah, right, right. As, anyway. So you're, 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 you're now asking your coach to play receiver. You're putting more film out of you playing receiver. And colleges want to put you at receiver because. In the past, when we had a really good athlete, right? Like you, you see in high school recruiting, oh, he's a four-star athlete. We didn't really give him a position. That guy is just like a guy you want to get the ball to, right? And so accordingly, we put him at quarterback or running back because that's where the easy touches happen. Ball snapped to the quarterback. You can just put it right in the running back's belly. He now has the ball. So this four-star athlete has the ball. That's what we wanted. When the Chiefs brought in Michael Hardman, or excuse me, the, the Georgia Bulldogs brought in Michael Hardman from high school, four-star athlete, played quarterback, played cornerback. They put him at receiver, and it's because it's easier now to get the ball in the receiver's hands than it ever was. Bubble screens, RPOs, jet touches. We have found ways to just give the ball to athletes and call them receivers instead of calling them running backs. And then they get developmental opportunities to actually run routes. And so we're seeing that recruiting shift push towards those players because now we don't have to call them running backs and line them up in the backfield to get them free touches behind the line of scrimmage. It's funny because you talk about how recruiting, they used to call them athletes. And now they're getting plugged into positions. I almost feel like in the NFL, it's flipping like a Debo is the perfect example of somebody who is uh, just a weapon, quote unquote. Like, I, I don't feel the need to label him. There are a million different ways that yeah, he you calls can, himself the, a wide back, which does yeah. not roll off the tongue and he needs to work on it. But that's what he calls himself. But ultimately, like he, he's everything, you know, which is the beauty of him, which is why everybody's looking for the next Debo. Good luck with that. From a developmental standpoint. If the passing leagues and the extra opportunities are leading to more talent at the wide receiver position, if that's at least one of the factors there, why aren't we seeing more good quarterbacks coming out? Do you think? I think I think I would say net we are. I know that's a tough thing to say after this last draft. This is not a good draft for quarterbacks. Took it on the chin there a little bit. I think net we are. But I will say that 
one of the reasons why we're still seeing good quarterbacks uh, drafted, and, we're, and, and I think I can say that with confidence that we are seeing better quarterbacks, is because the league has become more comfortable with these simple offenses that are run in college. Whereas five, 10 years ago, air raid quarterback was a pejorative. Now we're more okay with that idea, right? And so the offenses uh, in college got more spready. They got more RPOE. They got more simple. They took thinking out of the quarterback's head. And they just got the ball to playmakers. They just got the ball to receivers. This leads to great development in receivers. But there was that, that moment there, you know, in the 2010s, kind of coming out with, with a guy like Gardner Minshew, coming out with even Patrick Mahomes, who had his questions of like, how much can we trust these guys running these RPO offenses, running these air raid offenses? And it seems like the league has gotten over that hump a little bit to the point where they're saying, you know what? We're going to have to develop these guys. We're going to have to coach these guys up. There are, there are four offenses in college right now where if you run that offense, you can come to the NFL and run our offenses. It's just we, we have to accept the fact that there's development that has to happen there so that the scale has shifted a little bit. The grading curve has shifted a little bit. Quarterbacks are running simpler offenses, and that may make us feel like they're not as good of prospects. But the league has accepted that that's the reality, and the league has also found ways to run those simple offenses, right? If we're going to talk about like an NFL-esque program in college, we're going to talk about Alabama. Guess what they were running for Tua in 2019? It was RPOs. It was quick game. It was everything the Dolphins are doing now, which is like cheesy stuff at the NFL level, but it's what you have to do for this quarterback. And so the league has kind of bridged that gap in terms of expecting their quarterbacks to be these precise pocket-managing, game-managing pocket passers. So then what should the Dolphins do to best maximize Tua? How should they prioritize that in your opinion? Because they also have other weapons that can do more things that his skill set might not be best suited for, i.e. the social media clip that yes, they which which I feel so bad for Buddy who had to post that video. He was editing it. He knew he did his best to try to hide it. I appreciate it. I don't know that efforts. he knew. I don't know that I he knew. No, that 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 like herky jerkiness right when the ball was caught. I feel like he was trying his you best so? to like hide it a little bit. But why post it? So what we're talking about here is yes. there was a clip of Tua throwing deep to uh, Tyreek. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it follows the ball in the air and it's this pretty spiral. And then at the end, Tyreek has to kind of reach behind him to grab it. Yeah. So it's underthrown. Yeah. They're building it the correct way. This is, this is appropriate. Mike McDaniel, uh, to have a diverse running game that's going to allow you to get into easier play action and RPO ideas. Uh, Tyree Kill and Debo Samuel, who delightful downfield receivers. Uh, Debo, excellent intermediate receiver, but two of the best guys with the ball in their hands. We talk about these, these scheme touches behind the line of scrimmage. Both of those guys are going to be valuable. Excuse me, not Debo Samuel, Jalen Waddell, who hopes to be the Debo Samuel for, for the Miami Dolphins. So two players who are incredible in that regard. Yeah, this is the right way to build it. It doesn't feel good. And that's part of why, you know, Miami's certainly regretting the quarterback they took at five instead of Herbert, who went at six, and probably it will continue to be in the quarterback market moving forward because you, you feel internally that this is an offense we might be able to win with, but we're not going to win because of it. Uh, we're we're going to skate by with it. And that's not where you want to be if you have playoff aspirations. Uh, and so this is the right way to build it. They have done a, a, an appropriate job in understanding the limitations of their quarterback where that means their, their investments must go and where they must, you know, kind of cut some corners. We will see how successful they can be with it. But to me, it's a very narrow road to walk. So I think for many of the reasons that you just said, I think that it was the right decision to go pay Tyreek. 
because not only are you being forced to kind of create some offense um, where there might not otherwise be because of the quarterback position, it's also he gives you a really good opportunity to evaluate the quarterback so that you know whether or not you need to move on from this investment or to invest further. Absolutely. Um, but I do think that the Tyreek getting paid thing goes back to the original point of this, which is, are we going to continue to see that? Are teams going to continue to pay guys like Tyreek these massive contracts? Maybe there will always be teams like this that just need that or whether or not there's going to be this new model of developing wide receivers, bring them in or not developing, I guess, bringing in a wide receiver, drafting them, playing them on their rookie deal, and then just flush repeat before they pay them a massive contract. Based on what you've said about the future of wide receivers in the draft, do you think that that's maybe a direction that we might be headed? In a way. Uh, so the, the running back idea is, is, is a very crystal clear one. Uh, running backs get a lot of volume. And they get hit a lot. Getting hit a lot makes your age cliff uh, get a little bit shorter, right? You're more likely to start getting hurt and start depreciating athletically earlier than other positions that don't get hurt as much. So don't get hit as much. So running backs feel a little bit more fragile. And then uh, in terms of our, our understanding of running game from an X's and O's perspective and from an analytics perspective, we understand that while a running back's talent affects the running game, it is more drastically affected by the talent of the offensive line and what the blocking system is doing in front of that running back. So we can more easily cycle out replacement level players at running back, young, cheap guys, keep our line healthy, keep our line well-paid, keep our line talented, and we expect to run the football pretty well. That, a lot of that feels like it could be true at receiver. Let's go get a good quarterback which is like the good offensive line. Let's keep him healthy. Let's keep him well-paid, right? Star quarterback. Uh, we know that receivers can get soft tissue injuries, and we know that we can get production in a bunch of different ways, right? We had talked about all those different body types. There's a, a myriad of systems that we can use. We can go yards after the catch. We can go downfield, contested catch, jump ball, whatever. So let's cycle in constant new guys. Let's never overpay at this position. So those ideas feel analogous, and to a degree, they are. I think that you saw smart teams, Ravens, the Packers, the Chiefs, all decide to say, hey, we're going to go cheaper at the receiver position. What's critical in terms of the difference, which will make or break kind of the, the way we think about receivers over the next five, 10 years, is that the passing offense is more important than the running offense writ large, right? right. If you could be good at one thing, you'd be good at throwing the ball, throwing the ball as explosives, throwing the ball as conversions on third downs. That is, is a better prediction of overall offensive success and team success than the running game. You want both, but if you had to pick one, you'd want to be better at passing. And so, this, you know, uh, work being cheap at the running back position, this work at moving away from the running game, passing more on early downs, being a higher pass team makes sense because passing matters the most. Well, are, are we going to then go cheap at receiver? If the passing offense is really what we love and it's how we want to live in the modern NFL, that's a, another step further beyond that, that running back comparison. So that to me is, is the critical difference. I think that you will see teams with star quarterbacks, as we, we saw with Rodgers, Mahomes, and Lamar say that, all right, we have a, a limited cap. We have a limited amount of money to spend. We have a hard cap. We have to cut corners somewhere. We probably can get away with cheaper receivers because our quarterback's just that good, right? We have the ability to get that done. With the Packers, it's kind of weird because like Rodgers is old and also is Aaron Rodgers at any time could just like leave. But for like Mahomes and Lamar, cool, I get it. Uh, so I think we'll see that while we see teams like uh, the Cardinals, uh, the Dolphins, the Eagles who have young quarterbacks they are trying to figure out just how big of a second contract do we want to give this guy? They're going to go get that star receiver so that they can really see what their quarterback looks like with talented pass catchers, get a proof of concept on his passing ability. But for the star teams with the star quarterbacks, I think we will see the receiver position become a little bit more 
one year, 10 million, two year, 25 million. The way you saw with Marcus Valdez Scantling as you just met Schuster and some of these alternative options, because, hey, we have Mahomes. Our passing game can only be so bad. We can get a little bit cheaper receiver. And if you have a quarterback that you have question marks about, go ahead and pay up. Yeah, absolutely. Like AJ Brown to the Eagles is the best example. He's 24 and he's a proven NFL star. He also is amazing over the middle of the field, which is where Jalen Hurts has not liked throwing the ball at the NFL level. So let's go get A.G. Brown. We have Hurts right now to contract. If Hurts is going to be a good enough passer to win a playoff game, because the Bucs in the wildcard round just did not respect his arm at all, period. It was just they had no interest in, in, in pretending to defend the Eagles passing game. They didn't care about it. So if, if Hurts is ever going to become that guy, Brown is the sort of receiver he'd need. So let's give him Brown. And now he's got a year to show us he can throw him in the middle of the field and he can develop as a passer. If not, we still have A.J. Brown. He's 25 years old. It was only $54 million guaranteed on the deal. It's like a healthy receiver deal, but relative to Brandon Cooks and Christian Kirk, it's not outlandish. And we're going to go get our new guy, a rookie, and we're going to have a star 25-year-old receiver to develop him. So that's a perfect example of when you have quarterback uncertainty, star receiver becomes, I think, a little bit more important than for those teams who have quarterback certainty. Do you think we've seen enough from A.J. Brown to know that he's worth it? I do. I love A.J. Brown to death. I think A.J. Brown's a a ludicrously talented receiver. That that Titans-Niners primetime game, I want to say it was like week 12, week 13. That'll stick in my mind for a long time. Debo versus Brown going punch for punch. Those are defining games to me for those two players. Uh, Brown has, the, the, the red flag for Brown is the injury thing. I said that running backs get hit more than receivers. The way A.J. Brown plays, A.J. Brown gets hit a little bit. Uh, A.J. Brown takes those middle of the field throws. A.J. Brown's a big physical guy, and so Brown has been banged up, and that's your concern if you're Philadelphia. As you made this investment in a player who may not be a 17-game-a-year player, and that's always a little bit touchy. But for me, I love A.J. Brown. I love what he plays. I think he's a star. Obviously, we're moving in a direction where analytics are kind of factoring into everything, and front offices are surely using numbers to make these decisions. Do you think this becomes like a wins above replacement, or how do you think they determine whether or not a wide receiver ultimately is that guy that because it's not just an eye test thing anymore. It's not like that guy's really good. So let's pay, pay him. You know, what do you think? How do you think we make that determination about who is special enough that we can afford to invest in you and who is like not different enough from the next crop of guys? Right. More than absolutely likely. no idea. That's yeah. the most <laughs> difficult question. You know what I mean? And that, that's the reality. Yeah. Uh, I think what the thing that I see the most impact in terms of how analytics is, is, is changing the receiver position, in the passing game, is this idea of target distributions, target heat maps. Where can our quarterback throw the football, right? We have factors like time, time to throw. How long can he hang in the pocket until he's going to get hit? And what does he do when pressure comes? Is he an escape guy or is he a get rid of the ball quickly guy? Uh, what is his arm strength like, right? Like Joe Burrow is the man. He played in the Super Bowl for the AFC. Doesn't have great arm strength, but they found ways to get the ball deep outside for explosive gains by throwing the ball very quickly. Time to throw and we're going to let Burrow hit that, that deep ball now instead of waiting an extra beat because he's not Josh Allen, he's not Patrick Mahomes, he's not Justin Herbert, he can't make that throw. So we, we, we see an understanding of, of how numbers can tell us where a quarterback throws the football and how they're throwing the football there, right? Jimmy Garoppolo throwing middle of the field constantly in rhythm, quickly, in time, because he's just a system quarterback. He just likes to be that robot, just execute, execute, execute. So as, that, as those funnels help us to find play styles, those play styles can point us at the right receivers, right? I said that Jalen Hurts does not like to throw in the middle of the field. The Eagles got the best middle of the field receiver in the world. To me, that very clearly says we need to find out if our quarterback can do this. In Arizona, we have Kyler Murray get Marquise Brown. 
that's not a, oh, we don't know if Kyler can throw deep down the field vertical. That's a, hey, we like throwing deep down the field vertical. And we need to inform this decision. We need to get better on offense by getting a speedster, getting an elite downfield receiver like they believe Marquise Brown to be. And so I think that in, in terms of analytics, the thing that I see the most repercussions in is, is play style, target distribution. What sort of offense do we want to be? In terms of the magic numbers that tell us if a receiver is good or not, I would love for them to exist. Make my job a lot easier. Stop watching film. Click some buttons. I know who's good or not, but it's tough. Did you go on a rant recently about analytics? Did I just bring up analytics to an anti-analytics? It was a fake rant. Uh, so on, on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, which I did with with uh, Danny Kelly, uh, Danny Heifetz, and Craig Horlbrek, who's our that's our fantasy football team. They do an episode a year called the Take Purge, where for an hour it's like the Purge movies, like the siren goes off, you can say anything you want, no repercussions. And every year we do the draft cycle, and I just like a film guy. And the nerds are always like, hey, the nerds just only draft quarterbacks and don't draft any other positions and always trade back. And like, yes, those are generally good guardrails. But to me, there's always exceptions and there's always nuance and color. And so one of my takes for which I am not responsible, Lindsay, and I can't because it was the purge. Yes, because the take purge was get the nerds out of my football. I didn't mean it. And I love many nerds. But yes, there it is. (laughs) Uh, You're awesome. I want to ask you really quick about uh, the this year's wide receiver class. All the things that we said. Who do you think is um, most set up to succeed? Yeah, so I like Traylon Burks, and and it is a good uh, summation of everything we've talked about. He landed in a place with a ton of volume on Tennessee. No Julio Jones, no more AJ Brown. Uh, he had that build that was similar to AJ Brown coming out of the SEC. Uh, you know, six two, six three, two twenty, two twenty five. Unbelievable explosiveness in a short area, right? Burke's didn't run the 40 a lot of people were expecting, but watch the 10-yard split. Watch, watch him go from zero to 60 against LSU, against Ole Miss. Some impressive film in terms of that short area burst, which is a lot of what makes Debo Samuel a difficult player to tackle. NFL defenders are accustomed to seeing a guy of a certain size and going, he can only move so fast. And Debo and Burks have that thing where they just go. There's on top of you now, and it surprises you. It get, they, get, they get on you, and then you have to tackle them with half a shoulder instead of a full shoulder, and those boys are big. It's tough, tough to get away with those, those little margins. And so he has that explosiveness. He has that physicality. Uh, and he has that size to work that same A.J. Brown role. At Arkansas in the SEC, he didn't really have that role. They weren't trying to throw those routes as much. They weren't trying to ask their quarterback to throw in the middle of the field. Those are tough throws. In Tennessee, it's Ryan Tannehill. Tannehill loves throwing middle of the field. Tannehill will sit in the pocket, take a hit, and throw that ball, 18-yard dig, like I said, until the cows come home. Uh, and so to me, that's a really nice marriage of opportunity. Of, of role, uh, of, of the skills kind of fitting that we talked about, the, the, the talents fitting the traits, like it, it, everything is there for Burks to, I think, be really, really successful. If you had asked any Traylon Burks fan, of which I was one before draft, what's the one place he should go? Like, oh, Tennessee, perfect offense for him. And there he is. So I, I believe in Burks to be productive early. And it's the perfect example of what we're talking about here too, mm-hmm. about potentially moving on from somebody who is looking at a, a big money deal and plugging in a guy who does similar things potentially yep, and paying them a lot less. Yeah. And you get to find out is Ryan Tannehill, a guy who can win playoff games for us. Cause that's been a question. They've made it to the playoffs. Haven't won a lot of playoff games. And you also get a young player to potentially develop with Malik Willis. The Titans did a really good job of just very quietly getting ready for next, the next cycle, not just the next year, but the next era of Titans football in this draft. I thought it was a very sneaky rebuild draft and an impressive one because it required a lot of honesty with their team and where they were at and what their reality was. So good draft by them. I think Burks will be good. Good stuff by you, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. I had a good time. Thanks for bringing me on. 
And you can find Ben's work at TheRinger.com, also the Ringer NFL Show podcast, and at his Twitter handle, at Benjamin Solak. And yes, I noted all the points that he made about Burks in that Titans offense for fantasy purposes. Those rookie drafts are going to be here before we know it, and I feel like the receivers this year, the rookie receivers, are more grouped together than they've been in recent years. Different styles, different opportunities. I'm finding it hard to find a differentiator that I feel really strongly about. Like a guy whose skill set mixed with the opportunity present is way better than one of the other guys. So I'm intrigued by the things that he said about Burks. I'm also eager to hear what our next guest has to say about that subject matter. Jim Nagy, executive director of the Reese's Senior Bowl, knows the players and now he knows where they will be playing. Five guys in a position to pop. Coming up next. Hi, everyone. This is Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. After 45 years of covering everything in sports, I've been lucky to know some of the greatest personalities, storytellers, and legends. And I bring it all to my podcast, In Conversation with Leslie Visser. You'll hear from coaches, players, authors, and celebrities like Kansas City Chiefs superfan Eric Stone Street. There are a few immediate yeses, and talking to you was an immediate yes. New episodes come out every Thursday. I hope you'll listen and subscribe wherever you stream your podcasts. Jim, hi. Appreciate your time as always. Yeah, good to be back on, Lindsay. Can't believe we're we're finally through it. I know. Yay. So you actually, our last conversation was all the way back in December, proved to be pretty valuable to me um, post-draft in terms of, at the very least, providing some context for the Bears pick of Velas Jones and what they might have been thinking by taking him there. Because there were a lot of fans there in Chicago that seemed to be caught off guard. Did that pick make sense to you? Uh, it did because they need playmakers. You know, if you're talking about, you know, su- supporting a young quarterback, which I feel like that's the narrative for every team of the young quarterback. We got to build around the quarterback. We got to give the guy weapons. Um, so that's obviously what uh, Ryan Poles was trying to do in his first draft. And if you take a if you take a guy 71 overall, you obviously have a plan for him. It's not like they drafted, they didn't draft Bayless just to come in and be the return specialist. So they've, they've got a plan for him on offense and he can't, as we talked about back in December, he's so good with the ball in his hands. Um, so hopefully they'll be creative with him. They, it, it feels like that's the more that I talk about the bears draft and, and the, the pick of Bayless, the fact that they'd so desperately needed offensive playmakers, like they just, they, I mean, they have Darnell Mooney, but is he one, you know, like, so you need to put some people around Justin Fields so you can get an evaluation of him. And as you mentioned, that's a conversation we're having relatively frequently about these young quarterbacks. The fact that where they were looking to take a wide receiver, you know, you could have taken a Tolbert perhaps, maybe that would have been a better like X number one potential type wide receiver. But it feels to me like it makes sense to plug in a Valus because of the versatility that he gives you. If you are just devoid of offensive weapons to a degree, then maybe he can do more things for you. He's more of a Swiss army knife and maybe there's value in that. Is he that guy? Because I know that you brought up the Debo comp and not to say that he is a comp to Debo, but more of like that type of guy that people could use if they wanted to create a Debo like role on their team. What types of things do you see him actually doing to follow through on that comp for the Bears? Yeah, it's, it was more just the usage, Lindsay. Um, yeah. And again, I think what any team that drafts a player and expects them to get on the field year one and be versatile, um, you better dig deep into the player's mental acumen and how much he can pick it up because it's 
it's hard to be a rookie in that league, especially when you're throwing multiple positions at a guy. So I'm I'm sure the Bears, you know, kind of did a deep dive and with the Tennessee staff and with Bayless himself to figure out, okay, like we're going to have him. We're going to be, you know, playing him in the backfield some. We're going to be, you know, doing a lot of things to get him the ball, you know, in the run game, pass game. Like that's a lot on a young guy. So I, I'm sure they did their homework there. And then I, got, I do think the return stuff um, was was kind of probably a, a difference maker when you're when you're looking at a couple of receivers on the board because it's not Bayless can do punts and kicks um, equally as is good. I mean the guy was all American level guy in both phases, so he he will affect that that phase of the game. Um, and then on offense, yeah, it's just it's a playmaker and where the Debo comp is really the run strength. Um, Bayless is strong with the ball in his hands. He is a big, thick, put together guy. Um, and he's fast. We know that he was, the, I think the second fastest wide out of the combine this year running four, three, one, but it was more so the run strength, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would anticipate them incorporating him in a lot of different ways. Well, the bears, uh, congratulations to you because the bears, uh, have acknowledged that pretty much where he popped up onto their radar, where they got a lot of work done on him and a lot of other players in their draft class was down there at senior bowl there in mobile. So, so he's one guy that I'm going to put on my radar to kind of, uh, keep an eye on during training camp and then maybe try to grab in a later round in a fantasy draft, just because the potential for opportunity is there. Um, who are some people that jump out at you having evaluated this whole class, um, that you think ended up in situations that will bring out the best in them. Like there are some guys that we knew were going to be good. They're probably going to be good wherever they go, unless it's a terrible situation. There are some guys who I think you probably will end up liking more post-draft than you even did pre-draft because the opportunity will be there for them to be their best selves. Absolutely. There's a bunch of great fits. Um, and, and we can talk about a bunch of guys, Lindsay, but I think, you know, I, I had this conversation with a few players during draft weekend, guys that were getting antsy and texting me about when they were going to go. And, um, you know, I just tried to tell them players don't want to hear this. They want to go as early as possible, but it's really more important where you go than when you go. Um, you certainly don't want to fall like three rounds past where you thought you were going to go. Um, but if it's close, if it's like a round, and you end up in a much better situation to me, that's, you, you got to think long-term and I, I understand players are thinking in the immediacy, but um, I would start and we can bounce around to some different players, but I would probably start uh, in Arizona with Trey McBride. Uh, you know, the first tight end off the board from Colorado state Mackey award winner. I just think he went into a great situation. If, if you look at Arizona right now, they've got uh, Deandre Hopkins is going to start the year suspended. You know, they, they lost Christian Kirk to the Jacksonville Jaguars. They traded for Hollywood Brown. So there's a new piece. Um, mm -hmm. I get it that he and Kyler played college ball together, but that's a new piece in the offense. Um, and then they got Rondell Moore. And then you've got Zach Ertz at tight end. So I think you could see a lot more two tight end stuff coming out initially, at least while Hopkins is out. And that will give Trey a, 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 great, uh, a great opportunity to get on the field early. And again, I think it's a great opportunity for the Cardinals to maybe come out early in the season with a bunch of different looks that people haven't seen on tape in the past. They Ooh, have, that's an interesting point. I they like have that. really been a wide receiver heavy pass game because they really haven't had a second tight end, you know, especially last year. And now you bring McBride and Ertz out there and they're similar. I think, I think Trey, if you're just looking at it from Trey's perspective, he's a similar guy to Zach. I mean, he can watch Zach's tape and probably, you know, mold his game a little bit. And then everyone knows what a pro Zach is. So he'll learn under a guy that knows how to be a pro. Uh, so I think that's just a really good fit for, for Trey McBride in Arizona. 
Those are all really good points there. Um, should we take this to mean that Max Williams might not be long for Arizona, in your opinion? Because obviously he is there also recovering from an injury, might not be ready for the start of the season. But that would give them three wide receivers that, and I know they think highly of Max. They've called him the complete tight end and raved about his game. Sure, sure. He's a good combo tight end. But I think when you when you draft a guy up in the second round like Trey McBride, um, you've got a plan for him. I mean, you, you, you have to see that guy getting on the field. And again, I think the nice thing for Trey, he was the offense at Colorado state. Um, you know, there was the one game, he was our senior bowl player of the week one week, and I forget who they played, but I'd never seen a stat line like it in my life. He had 109 of the 110 receiving yards for Colorado state that week. What? Yes. 109 of 110. Yeah. I don't know who got (laughs) the other yard Lindsay, but he had, so I, I guess what it what it says is Trey's used to being the offense. Like he was Colorado State's offense. He's used to being focused on. He's used to drawing double coverage and all the attention. So now he's out on a football field with guys like Zach Ertz and Rondell Moore and Hollywood Brown. He's not going to be getting any of that. He's going to be out there single covered. He's not going to know what to do with himself. Um, so it's going to make it's going to be like a whole new lease on life for Trey, just not getting all that extra attention. So. Um, yeah, I, I would think even though Max is still there, I, I think they would have to have a plan for Trey to get him on the field right away. Now, uh, assuming that there are some people that are listening that aren't as familiar with, you know, the different players coming out of college and their strengths and weaknesses and stuff. Uh, I'm sure some Cardinals fans have read the fact that the Cardinals said that his comp is a little bit more similar to Max Williams than Zach Ertz. Um, and Zach, uh, Max Williams is somebody that I think of more of like the strength is run blocking and what you, he brings to the game all the way around. Not that he can't operate within the passing game, but he has not been a prolific, you know, passing tight end, receiving tight end, I guess would be the way to put that. Yeah. Um, it is. So that is, that is different than Trey. Why do you think that they see the comp as being more similar to Max? Well, I didn't do Max when he was coming out of college. That was back when I was in Seattle scouting for the Seahawks. I didn't do him, so I'm not really familiar with him. I do know Ertz a little better, and I just think uh, just because of the pass game stuff, the athlete, the body type, the size, the measurables, I think are very similar. Uh, they both have a really good feel in the pass game, so I see that. I, I don't know Max as well. That's To me, that's – I mean, they know their roster better than I do. Um, right. But I just I just think Trey is ready to 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 get on the field right away and help you in the pass game. He's just a really accomplished guy in that phase of the game. And even though he is only like six, three and a half, 250 pounds, he's got enough fight in him to to play on the line of scrimmage as maybe a backside blocker. I don't think he's ever going to be like that big, big bodied wide tight end that just moves people off the line. But he is scrappy. He will you know, he'll get up on linebackers and safeties and he'll do enough as a blocker. But to me. You draft Trey McBride in the second round. You draft him to be a threat in the pass game. I love it. I love the point, too, about uh, throwing a little bit more too tight and just to mix things up so that people don't know what's coming at the beginning of the season. That feels like something Kingsbury can do to freshen up that offense, which I think is something he should be looking to do this offseason. Is there a wide receiver that you think uh, went to a particularly good situation where their value kind of uh, increases as a result? Well, you brought him up, Jalen Tolbert, um, it, which is funny. He and Bayless are both Mobile area guys. We had we had six players from Mobile drafted, Lindsay, in the first 126 picks, which is insane. Um, for, wow. for a little community our size, to have six guys go in the top 
you know, top four rounds was amazing, but I think Jalen Tolbert, I really thought Jalen could go in the second, um, you know, hearing what I've, I've heard coming out of Dallas, that that was the debate in the second round was either Sam Williams, the pass rusher from Ole Miss or Jalen. They were considering him there. They kind of felt like they had a better chance of Jalen falling to the 88th pick. So they went with Sam and it was one of those things on draft day. Uh, when I talk to my friends around the league going into the draft, all I say is I hope it falls your way. Um, and that one completely fell Dallas's way. Um, so they end up with with Jalen Tolbert, who obviously Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb are the top two guys. They've got a really good starting pair there, but they need a third guy. A lot of times you're not going to bank on a rookie to to get up to speed and be that three right away. I think Jalen can do that. And I, and I just say that because he's been here in Mobile. It's South Alabama. I've, I've been watching him since high school, uh, really developed a relationship with Jalen. He's been in our office. He's watched tape on this screen a bunch. Um, getting ready for this past season. So like from a, from a maturity standpoint, he is a pro. Like he's been preparing like a pro. He went down to Tampa last summer and worked out with Randy Moss and Yul Murphy and all those guys that train in, da- in Tampa together. So this guy's going to hit the ground running. He's going to get to Dallas. He's going he's to hitch his wagons to, to CD and, and Michael Gallup and learn from those guys. And the, the other great thing is, He's got a cool relationship with Dak Prescott already. Like Dak's already reached out to him. Um, you know, so I, I really think there's a plan there for Jalen to be the three right away. South Alabama's all-time leading receiver averaged 17.8 yards per catch in his last three years of college. Obviously has a lot of speed too with that 4-4 time um, from the testing leading up to the draft. Where do you see him playing on the field primarily? Is he an outside guy? Is he a guy that you can move into the slot? What's his game? Well, and that's one of the that's that's one of the great things Jalen brings to the table. And that was a big thing for him coming back to school. He almost left as a junior. They were going through a coaching change at the time and and agents were circling. The the vultures were circling. <laughs> I say that though my my agent friends, you guys aren't vultures, but um they were circling Jalen pretty good two Decembers ago. And uh South Alabama brought him back, and part of the sales pitch was bringing in Major Applewhite to be the to be the offensive coordinator. And Major was coming from Alabama, where he had been on the staff with uh, Steve Sarkeesian. And they did such a good job two years ago, moving Devontae Smith around and getting in the ball and being creative when Jalen Waddle went down. That's what they did with Jalen Tolbert this year at South Alabama. He had really just been, he'd been locked in at one position his whole career. This year, he showed the ability mentally to move around. I mean, they were they just did everything they could do with the guy. They moved him outside in the slot, motioned him, um, you know, used him in the run game. So he will be good to go. And I think he is a guy that they plan on moving around. He can definitely do that. If, if one of those guys goes down, they can plug him in as a starter at either X or Z. And then if he's the third guy, he can, he can play in the slot. Just use all the Jalen's the same. <laughs> That's right. Don't have to look that far for the comps. What about a running back? Is there a running back that, because I feel like the running backs are really interesting, right? In the draft, you've got like Brees Hall, who was the consensus number one back coming out, goes to a situation in New York that I know some people think is going to be a good situation for him. It was confusing to me because of Michael Carter. And I thought Michael Carter looked pretty good last year. So now you're putting two people in the backfield from a fantasy standpoint. It's a nightmare. That's not what we were looking for at all. <laughs> more confusion. But is there a running back that you think went to a particularly good situation? Yeah, I would say Damian Pierce from Houston. Mm. And I, I, I tweeted that out in the middle of the draft when they made the pick. I think that was my favorite pick of the draft up to that point. Getting Damian in the fourth round um, to me was incredible value because I do think he's a three down starter. 
Um, he was one of those guys at Florida just didn't get a ton of touches. I want to say maybe 80 carries, uh, something really limited this year. But again, I'm not even faulting that Florida coaching staff. I know that when, when we were hyping up uh, Damian coming into Senior Bowl week and everything here, I read a lot of Florida fan fan base stuff, and they were taking shots at, at uh, Dan Mullen and that previous staff on why they didn't use him more. Hey, in the in the day of the portal and trying to keep players happy, um, I get it. Like college coaches got to keep got to spread out touches. So. I mean, the good thing is from an NFL perspective, if I were in a draft room, I would have been, that would have been one of the things I harped on is how much tread this guy's got left on his tire. He was not used up at Florida at all, um, but he's a three down starter. He's going to go in there. I think it's Rex Burkhead, you know, is an, is an established guy. He's been with Nick Casario in New England, but he's going to be the, the third down guy primarily, I would right. think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Damien's got a really good chance to be that first and second down starter. And then he can pass protect. He's good at that. He showed that at the senior bowl. He can catch it out of the backfield. He, he might not be the most dynamic guy as a receiver, uh, but he's a he's an NFL runner. When you watch him on contact and, and just his lower body power and ability to see things and bounce off contact, like I think he, he's got a chance to be, um, he's got a really good chance to be their starter right out of the gate week one. They've got Marlon Mack that they brought in this year. This is a guy who could, beat him out in your opinion? Yeah, they're, they're different runners. Um, you know, Marlins, Marlins more top end speed. He's coming off injury. Marlins been a good back. I think Marlins thing is just staying healthy. Um, you know, again, that's probably going to be a good battle in camp. I just think that of the rookie runners, Damien's got a really good shot right there. And, uh, and if you're just looking fantasy wise, again, Marlins, a guy that with a little bit durability concern at some point, I think Damien's going to see the field quite a bit. You. This is a full sidebar, but you brought up something I think is really interesting from a college game standpoint. And everyone's talked about the portal and how frustrating it is that, you know, these guys can leave at any minute or or some people have been frustrated, I guess, and looked at it that way. Um, from a coaching standpoint, is that something that you're hearing that they have to constantly effectively like constantly recruit and make make football decisions? based on playing time in order to maintain their roster. It's, it's an interesting way of looking at. It I hadn't really thought about that. You can't necessarily just sit there and put your best guys out there in a way that you think would put you in a position to win the game the most. Cause you have to think about retention also. Yeah. It's, it's really complicating things for college coaches. I know a lot of guys that are, are really wanting to make the jump to the NFL for that reason. Um, it's just coaches, coach at college coaches. Right. Because again, like the recruiting thing has always been a little bit of a rat race, right? Like recruiting's difficult. I mean, you're on the road a ton. Um, those college guys, like they, they really, they earn their keep, man. <laughs> like I, I don't, whatever money they're making, they, they probably deserve more at most of these schools for the amount of hours they have to put in. But it used to be, you're just recruiting high school kids. Now you're, you're really recruiting your entire roster on a daily basis. And you're on the whims, you're at the whims of an 18, 19 year old, 20 year old kid who, you know, if he goes into the spring game and he doesn't get the run that he thinks he should get, now he's in the portal. So, I mean, it's a daily challenge. And I think with Damian, just maybe specific to Damian, um, knowing what people at Florida think of him and, and our experience with him in the senior bowl and what a great dude this guy is, like his energy level, um, you want him in your locker room. Like I even called the guys at Florida, I actually went to Florida. I went and spoke to the team at Florida a little bit after 
our game. And I asked him, I'm like, was he the same guy in this building as he was in Mobile for a week? Because like his energy level was off the charts. And they're like, oh yeah, that's him every day. That's Damien. Um, but so if you have a guy, if you have that kind, if you have a guy like that, who's going to accept his role and be a good teammate and be a good program guy, you know, that's maybe why he wasn't the full-time starter there because maybe, and I'm not saying specific to this case, but say maybe you have another guy that would be tend to be more disgruntled or a little more high maintenance. You might just play that guy a little more because you know, Damien's going to play his role and be in, and be a good teammate and be happy with it. So it's just those, you know, it's managing those egos and touches and, um, it's really made it difficult on these college coaches. Oh, and then where's the line, right? Like where you, cause you want to keep people getting reps, uh, so that they're happy because you need the people on your team in order to field team. But then where's the line in terms of production and value added, uh, before there's a drop-off so that you're actually hurting your ability to win games, which is ultimately the main, I mean, it just feels completely confusing. And like you said, I, I you couldn't pay me enough money. I mean, no one's asking me to, but like to be a college coach anyway, because of how hard and the constant recruiting of high school players. Now that you factor in the constant recruiting, it just feels like there's there no days off, right? Like a full, full Bill Belichick over there. That's right. That's right. Okay. So that's a wide receiver or running back and a tight end. We're hitting up the skill position players. That's three. Let's do a couple more guys. Um, how about on the offensive line? Are there any people who uh, jump out at you? Yeah, I would I would look to uh, my old place in Seattle um, in terms of fit, really for both players and for the organization. They've been, you know, I was part of it. We were trying to figure out the offensive line for a lot of years there, um, and I think they found their bookends. I really did. I with 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 Charles Cross from Mississippi State in the first round, who is really probably the most NFL ready pass protector in this draft, coming from Mike Leach's offense. Now, now, sure, some of the run game stuff is, is going to be a little work in progress. But if you're talking about protecting Drew Locke and giving Drew Locke a chance to be successful this year, he's he can talking do, about that. Anyway. Hey, that's a separate. It's Drew. Comment. We're that's the story. We're sticking with it. It's Drew. It is. It's going to be Drew. It's going to be yeah. Drew. Um, and then on the right side, you know, Abe Lucas from Washington State, who was a right tackle his whole time there at, at Washington State, in the third, bouncing back in the third round and getting a guy that a lot of people, myself, I thought he'd go in the second. Um, and they've got two young guys. They've got Stone Forsythe, who was a sixth round pick a year ago, plugged in at left tackle. So Charles Cross, obviously, you're taking him in the top 10. You think that's going to be your starter. And then on the right side, they started a few games last year with another rookie, Jake Curran, uh, who was an undrafted guy last year, senior bowler, who, who made their team and started some games. So now you've got a third rounder who's got to beat out an undrafted rookie. And that, you know, that's going to be a battle. I mean, Pete will open that up and he'll compete that thing out. Um, but really coming out of this draft, Seattle could have their two bookend tackles of the future for the next, you know, six, seven, eight years. And uh, that's a that's a much better spot to be in from the Seattle Seahawks standpoint than they've been in the last, you know, five to 10 years. From your lips to God's ears, man, just like fingers crossed there for Seattle. Uh, two questions there are Charles Cross. The fact that he is a good pass protector is going to be obviously very welcomed as that is an area that they have just been awful in. But Charles Cross, the the run game stuff is obviously a priority there for Seattle. So if you're Seattle or you if you're you looking at it from a Seattle prism, how do you balance, you know, when you're trying to make a decision about a guy to draft, which to prioritize? 
there because clearly the run blocking is massively important because that's what you want to do the majority of the time, but you have to get better in pass pro. Right. And they're, that's going to be their identity. And that's what Pete has really always wanted to be their identity is running the football. And that's why they took Kenneth Walker from Michigan state in the second round. They've got Chris Carson coming off an injury and Rashad Penny now entering a, you know, a contract year. And he, he, it took, it took Rashad a few years, but he, uh, he got it going last year. He had a really nice year for him, but so that's, that's what they want to be. But in terms of team building, you can't be short-sighted. You can't look at like, Oh, Charles Cross might struggle in the run game his rookie year. You have to, you have to draft the best player. Um, and they felt like Charles Cross of the tackles that that got to them there at the ninth pick, he was the best one. So again, it might not be ideal next year, but you can't just you're you're talking about a guy a top ten pick. You hope Charles Cross is there a decade, right? So yeah, year one might not be ideal, but he's not going to get your quarterback killed in, in pass pro. Uh, you might have to play a little more tight and heavy stuff on the left side to help him out in the run game. Um, but again, you you. You will deal with those growing pains year one to get them going in the run game to get the pass protector right away. In terms of uh, Abraham Lucas, so he was a four-year starter at right tackle, correct, at Washington State. That's always an interesting one for me. Now he's getting drafted to go play right tackle, so that's great. You don't need to project whether or not he can flip um, sides because you're putting him right there. But uh, there are questions that I'm sure will come up about why somebody played right tackle specifically, if he was good enough to play in the NFL, um, why they didn't put him at left tackle at Washington state. Um, well, you know, when he got there, when he started off, uh, they had Andre Dillard there and Andre played in the senior bowl a few years ago. I think it was my first year. I think, I think that probably would have been Abe's freshman year. Dillard was the left tackle. Um, and he ended up being a first round pick for the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, I don't know. I haven't talked to those coaches on why they didn't move him. I mean, to me, he's more of an NFL right tackle athlete anyway. So I would be, you know, if you're the Seahawks, I'm happy they didn't move him over. You're getting a guy that's really, really comfortable on that right side. Abe's a really good player. Could he have played left tackle in college? Absolutely. And he would have been a really good college left tackle. But when you're projecting it, I do think he would have been a better NFL right side player. So the thing is with Abe, which, which, you know, maybe gave some teams a little hesitation was the Pac-12 competition this year. Um, Abe made it look really easy. There was not a lot of good competition out there that the conference as a whole is down a little bit right now from an overall NFL talent perspective. So he didn't see a lot of NFL rushers. I guess Kayvon Thibodeau was, was probably the best one he faced. And Thibodeau got after Washington State a little bit, but it was over on the left side. He was doing all his damage. It wasn't against Abe. Um, so no, they, they got a good player in the third round. Again, he's, he just wasn't tested. He, he really made it look easy the entire season. I mean, it's, you know, he, he faced some good people here in mobile. And I think that's where people got really comfortable. Okay. This guy's an NFL starter. Cause you saw him against future NFL people. Uh, but the PAC 12 tape, what was tough to, to gauge that. Well, the, uh, USC Trojan in me is very sad about the answer that you just <laughs> gave there, but, uh, I, have faith that that's going to change. Um, what about the defensive so. side of the ball? <laughs> what about the defensive side of the ball? Anybody jump out at you there? Yeah. Um, I would say in Baltimore, you know, Baltimore gets louded every year for their drafts. They do such a good job there, you know, from, from Ozzie Newsom, now Eric DaCosta and, and, and that's that whole department. They've just done a great job. They just, they just take good football players. It's a real simple formula, right? Just take good players. Um, <laughs> So they, they, they let the draft come to them and, and that, well, that really happened. And so I think a lot, a lot of people going into the first round thought they were targeting Georgia's uh, Jordan Davis, 
the big nose tackle with the, with the first pick. And then you get there on draft day and Philly jumps ahead of him. And I don't know, like talking to those guys in Baltimore, like I haven't dug in and, and tried to, you know, unveil their plans and what they were planning to do. But I know a lot of mock draft people thought that's what they were going to yeah. do because it only made sense. He, he would have been a good Haloti Nada type Raven player. Uh, but so they were patient though. They didn't jump. They took Kyle Hamilton and they take Tyler Linderbaum, the center from Iowa. And they just keep taking good football players. And there they are in the third round and they get Travis Jones, who during senior bowl week was arguably the best defensive lineman here bar none. Um, I thought he had a chance of going in the first round. I think, you know, some of the up and down college tape at UConn maybe held people back a little bit, but his week in mobile, he, he was dominant. He put people on their heels all week. He's got power. I think he showed down here. He can play on all three downs. Like he has the ability to collapse the pocket, which not a lot of nose tackles have that. Usually when you have some of that third down value as a nose tackle, you are going up in the first couple of rounds. And he he lasted to the third. So you look for a fit, a guy that like really feels like a Raven type player. And for them, a guy with a high ceiling, a guy that really feels like he's just trying to just starting to scratch the surface. A really, really powerful man um, with a lot of first round flashes and starter talent. I mean, this is a guy, he's going to have to compete right away with Michael Pierce who was a good player for the Ravens for a number of years, went to Minnesota as a free agent, got paid well, didn't really pan out, sat out the COVID year, now is back in Baltimore. Um, I think I think that uh, I think Travis Jones has a really good chance of coming in there and playing right away. I did his game in zero week uh, against Fresno State, and I remember the coaches talking about how he was, well, first of all, their best defensive player, but also a guy who had totally redone his body um, since he got to UConn that he came in at 360, got down to 328 was like 13% body fat. One of the questions that I know Ravens fans were asking prior to the draft about Jordan Davis, their concerns about whether there was any pass rush that could come from that position. Is that something that you see Travis being able to do? Absolutely. And I think that was the value of him coming to the senior bowl. Honestly, like the one-on-one stuff, he put some good players on their heels and he walked some guys back. I mean, Cole strange, the first round pick, the 29th pick to the Patriots, who I think is going to be a Pro Bowl player over time um, in New England. I, I know that I get it that Pats fans were kind of skeptical of a guy coming from Chattanooga. They hadn't heard a lot about him, especially the casual fan. Uh, he's a good player. And when you see what what Travis Jones did to him on a couple reps, Zion Johnson, who another guy I think's got a chance to go to Pro Bowls, first rounder to, to the Chargers there in L.A., and what he did to Zion on some reps there. So, um, and the funny thing is those three guys were all training in Pensacola leading up to uh, the senior bowl in the draft. So those guys are all buddies, but um, no, I think Travis has some really explosive, natural inline power in his body to get people on their heels. And it, when you're talking about nose, they're not going to be like pretty pass rushers. They're going to be guys that get right into you, knock you back and, and walk you back and, and, and get you in the quarterback's lap. And I think Travis can definitely do that. He, he certainly showed it here against high-end people. I mean, you're talking about per first-round picks. I mean, the Patriots and the Chargers picked those two guys because they see them as Pro Bowl-type players. You draft guys in the first round to be Pro Bowl players. So if Travis can do that against them in one-on-one -on -one battles, um, he certainly has that in his body to be that guy's pro. Did I see you tweet recently that next year's wide receiver class is going to be significantly better? than this year's wide receiver class? From a senior standpoint, um, that's how the board started now. Like our staff had done some work on that. I'm digging into it. I, I've lowered, dropped a couple guys on the board since I started watching a couple of these guys. 
but it's going to be good. It's going to be another strong class. I mean, I just think this receiver position thing, these guys are all playing so much football. It's no secret, all the seven on seven stuff and, and guys in college throwing it around. It just, these guys are so much more ready made and, and really such so many good athletes out there, but yeah, I expect it to be a good class. I think it's going to be better than at least senior wise. I think probably a little bit better than this year's class was. Who's a name that we should be keeping our eye on? Uh, gosh, I would say Cedric Tillman from Tennessee is probably the best one I've seen so far. And we, we have a little lineage of Tennessee guys here in Mobile over the last couple of years. Juwan yeah. Jennings is doing good stuff in San Francisco. Josh Palmer out in your backyard in LA with the Chargers. And then this year with Bayless, who we talked about. Uh, so we could go four years in a row. Cedric is a uh, big, fast, strong, uh, does it against good people in the SEC, playmaker, has got playmaking ability. So um, yeah, really exciting player. Jim, you're the best. I always love picking your brain. So much uh, good stuff comes of it. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, good to see you, Lindsay. Have a great summer. Lots more good stuff from Jim on his Twitter feed where he's already tweeting out clips of 2023 prospects. He posted one of Jalen Cropper from Fresno State this week um, in a game that I did sideline for, actually. The highlight that he posted was that UConn game that we already mentioned uh, where Travis Jones played. Hottest game I've ever been to. <laughs> Literally went to walk to the other side of the field to check on the UConn bench at one point. Got about three quarters of the way and thought I was going to pass out. I literally had to stop and do that like hands on your thighs, head down, get your bearings thing. Ended up turning around, going back to the Fresno State side, camping out by the Bulldogs trainer tent, which ended up being where the story was moving forward anyway, as like eight players ended up getting IVs, including, if I remember correctly, Cropper, definitely their quarterback, Jake Hayner. Anyways, always love talking to Jim, and I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. Big thanks to him and the ringers, Ben Solak, for joining the show this week. Also, a big thanks to Andrew Emmer, as always, who produces the show, Marissa Rivas, who is the acting director of sports podcasts for SiriusXM, and Steve Cohen, who is the SiriusXM senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. As always, I would be very grateful if you could hit that subscribe button, maybe a quick tap on that five-star um, button. Also, if you have a little bit of extra time, a review would be awesome. I'm always open to hear your thoughts on my social media channels as well. Lindsay underscore Rhodes on Twitter. I'm Lindsay Rhodes NFL on Insta. Got a great guest lined up for next week's show who has been having a lot of deep conversations these days as the host of The Pivot. You also know him from NFL Live on ESPN. And of course, you know him from his days in Pittsburgh with the Steelers. It is Ryan Clark. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. I hope you'll join us for that show. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week. Sirius XM Podcasts.